and we're going to be reading from Romans chapter 12. If you could find that in your Bibles and read along with me. Romans chapter 12. We're going to be reading the whole chapter. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, the one who teaches, in his teaching, the one who exhorts, in his exhortation, the one who contributes, in generosity, the one who leads, with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil. But give thought to do what is honourable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Amen. And there's always a risk when you choose an entire chapter in the book of Romans that you bite off more than you can chew, but we can handle it. Uh, it will be all right. Now, a few years ago, a friend of mine was um, talking to one of his work friends who happened to be a Christian. So my friend was a Christian, and he was talking to another friend. Let's call him Jack. Now, Jack was about to get married, and he asked my friend about his bachelor party, and he wanted to know 
How far can I go at my bachelor party without going too far? He wanted to know uh, how much he could get away with at his bachelor party without, you know, crossing the line. How much drinking is too much drinking? How much, uh, to what level should the waitresses be clothed at the bar before he should rethink the venue? How far could he go without going too far? He wanted to know where the line in the sand was. And this morning I want to think about obedience uh, and it uh, obedience to rules, submitting yourself to authority. Uh, and this is kind of an ugly thought in our culture today, isn't it? We don't like to live with rules. We want to cross the line. We, we glorify rule breakers. Our national hero is Ned Kelly, who is famously a criminal. We want to know how much we can get away with And obedience is this kind of ugly concept in our world. And I want to see if we today together can reshape our view of obedience to God's laws a bit. I want to see if maybe, just maybe, obedience can actually be a beautiful concept. And I'd like to suggest to you that obedience is kind of like a diamond. Now, when you look at it too close up, all you can see is one part of the diamond. It's still a diamond, but it's not, it's not really that pretty. To get the full effect of the beauty of a diamond, you've, you've got to hold it up to the light and, uh, so that all of its facets can be appreciated. And I'd like to suggest to you that obedience is a little bit like that diamond. And today, we're going to look at three sides of this diamond. Now, it should be immediately obvious to you that I am not a jeweler, because I imagine that if you cut a diamond in three pieces, you just get a pyramid, and that doesn't show it as pretty as it could be. But just go with the metaphor for uh, for me this morning, because we're going to look at these three sides of the diamond, these three three facets. And the first facet to this obedience diamond is the basis of our obedience. Why, why should we obey God? What, I mean, why bother paying attention to his laws? Why should we do what he says? God provides many laws in Scripture, many rules, many guidelines, uh, and he doesn't do that just for laughs. He does it because obedience is important to him. And so we're going to be looking at obedience by asking this question, what is the basis of our obedience? Why should we care? Why should we obey God? Why should we do what he says? I can think of at least two different reasons why people obey those that are in authority above them. And the first is because we're afraid of the stick. We're afraid of the consequences if we don't obey That's why people obey dictators out of fear. If a government official in North Korea uh, criticizes the might and the power of the Korean South uh, North Korean missiles, he would lose his spot at the table. Uh, He would lose his head, most likely. His obedience is based on fear. So should we obey God because we're afraid of him? I mean, it's true, isn't it, that God is almighty, all-powerful, all-holy. He is the God who is ultimately just, and, and this should create a sense of fear in us. All throughout the Old Testament, when we see that people uh, want to see God, they either fall on their face, or they hide their face from Him, or if, in fact, they enter His presence in an unworthy manner, they get zapped and burnt up. 
it's not for nothing that when the Bible talks of our respect for God, uh, it's awe is the phrase we use. It's the fear of the Lord. Now, growing up in South Africa, um, I went to a school where we had corporal punishment. Uh, now, technically, it was against the law, but um, it was implicitly kind of encouraged by both the parents and the school, and, and everyone knew that that's just what happened. And so if you disobeyed in this context, you would get a smack by one of the teachers. And I remember a well-worn wooden paddle sitting above the door where my teacher kept it, hanging on the wall as a reminder of, to his students of what bad behavior would bring. It inspired a sense of fear, and indeed, it resulted in obedience amongst his students. But the problem with fear-based obedience is that it doesn't change the heart, does it? I do not love that teacher. It might cause us to do the right thing. It might actually cause us to obey. Uh, it might actually cause us to obey our entire lives, but it does not change the heart. And it certainly doesn't transform us. And when, we, when we're honest with ourselves, I think sometimes we can, we can view God in this way, can't we? That we obey him out of fear. We don't want to end up in hell. But is that really the obedience that God wants from us? Is that really right? You see, God doesn't want the letter of the law. He wants our hearts. He doesn't want obedience like Jack's who's, who wants to go right up to the line at his bachelor party to see how much he can get away with uh, before transgressing the law. He doesn't want us to walk right up to the line in the sand uh, where obedience turns into a disobedience and we stand there at the edge longing for what's on the other side, begrudgingly staying on this side of the line just because we fear the stick. The basis for our obedience to God cannot be fear. So then what is it? Our text says, Therefore, brothers, in view of the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. In view of the mercies of God. Obedience here is not obedience because of fear. It's because of love and gratitude generated out of what God has done, out of his mercies, in light of his mercies. Now, what are these mercies that, that, uh, that the author has in view here? What, what is Paul talking about when he says the mercies of God? If you read the first 11 chapters of Romans, you get a picture of what the mercies of God are. You see, Paul has spent the last 11 chapters explaining to his readers everything that Jesus has done on the cross, how he came to bear our sins how would we would be completely lost without him, how the world is completely lost without him, how even the, the, the structures and the earth is groaning under the weight of sin and we would be lost without Christ. He shows us that our hearts are completely wicked and without help, how even when we want to do good, we end up doing evil without Christ, how our entire being is bent on doing sin, on being our own God. 
And in the midst of our rebellion to God, he shows us how Christ ha- has um, comes, is given, how God pours out his wrath for sin on him, and how as a result we are now to live uh, with Jesus forever when we, when we trust and obey him, uh, him, when we have faith in him. We are freed from the consequences of our sins. How when we believe in Jesus and confess with our ma- mouths that he is Lord, that we would be saved. And that doesn't depend on our obedience, actually. It doesn't depend on our works. It doesn't depend on how good we are or how much we do at church, how often we read our Bibles and pray, how much of our money we tithe, how good we do at being part of a soup kitchen and so on. It depends entirely on Jesus' work on the cross. And this completed work on the cross is the basis for our obedience in view, in light of God's mercies. And Paul says, in view of that, in light of everything that God has done for us in Christ, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. To die. A sacrifice is something you kill, right? To die to kill ourselves, to offer ourselves as living sacrifices, to put aside the old way of life, all the stuff that's on the other side of that line, to die to that and to live for him instead. And we do that in light of Christ and what he has done for us. You see, if if our obedience was based on fear, our hearts would not be changed. If we obey God out of fear, we would walk right up to the line in the sand, but what our hearts want is still what's on the other side of the line. We would be like Jack asking, how much can I get away with before it becomes sinful? That's not what living as a living sacrifice looks like in view of God's mercy. People like that are trying to be good people in view of God's wrath not in view of his mercy. And so how do you know? How do you know whether you're obeying God out of fear or in view of his mercies? You see, when you see God only as the fearful overlord, what tends to happen is that you will obey right up to the line. We will study scripture and we'll draw up a chart of what is and isn't sinful. We'll tithe our cumin and our uh, coriander and all our spices and whatever else and we'll go right up to the line and we know that if we step over it we can expect bad consequences but that's what your obedience will look like. How much can I get away with? But when we obey God in view of his mercies We know the line is there. We know when we cross it. But instead of walking as close to it as we can without stepping over, we run the other way. If you love your wife or your your partner that you're about to get married to, your engaged person, you don't ask the question of your bachelor party, how much can I get away with? You want to go to bed as early as possible so that you can wake up the next morning to be married to your bride. You don't want to walk on the border of sin. You want to ask, how far can I get away? What can I do to protect this wonderful relationship I'm about to have with my wife? 
You know that the real prize is the wife, not what you can get away with. And when we live out of fear, we only see what's on the other side of the line and think, that's what I really want. The grass really is greener on the other side. But when we live out of, uh, in view of God's mercies, we see the truth that the grass is always greener at the foot of the cross. So the essence of our obedience then is offering our bodies, living out of love in light of the mercies of God. In light of everything that Jesus has done on the cross, that is the basis of our obedience and that's the first side of this obedience diamond. Second side I want to look at this morning is uh, the engine room. What powers our obedience? What drives it? So if the basis is the mercies of God, what drives it? I'd like to suggest to you that what drives it is gratitude born out of a renewed mind. Gratitude born out of a renewed mind. Now, you might say, okay, that's all good and well. I understand. I've been in a Reformed church all my life. I understand how we live our lives in Gratitude and response for what God has done in Christ on the cross for us, in view of God's mercies. I get that. I've grown up with that. I understand that. But how do I do that in a way that is sustainable over the course of my life? How do I turn from fear-based to love-based obedience in an ongoing way? How do I offer my body as a living sacrifice in a way that is sustainable, that has enough power to keep going even when life gets tough? What's the engine room, the power of my obedience? If you're like me, if you're human, then the reality is that we don't like sometimes obeying God. What if our reality is that I don't always feel the love for God that generates this obedience? What if I don't feel the love for God that generates true obedience? What if I don't feel like obeying? What if sin, what if breaking God's law, what if on that, is on that side of the line is actually what I want every day? I think you know what that's like because you're human. I know what that's like. How do we live in that tension? What is the solution to this internal tension between who we are as believers in Christ who live in the light of the, of the mercies of God and the old self that wages war within us, that wants its own way, that believes deep down that actually I know what's best for me and God doesn't get a say. Actually, the forbidden fruit is what I really want. And in my heart of hearts, I think that God is selfish for denying me that. Because that looks like fun. Have you ever felt that tension? How do we deal with that? Well, the text gives us an answer in the form of a diagnosis, actually. And the diagnosis is this. You feel conflicted. We feel torn between the right and the wrong things, the wanting to do God's will and wanting sin, because our thinking, our minds, are the seat of our being, the way uh, how we process the world is still shaped 
by the systems and thinking of this age, of this world. The diagnosis is this, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this age or to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to discern the good, pleasing and perfect will of God. Our problem is that in our heart of hearts, in the seat of our being, we subscribe to the values, to the desires, to the priority lists of this age, of this world. A world which lives totally without reference to God. That's our problem. And what we need is a radical metamorphosis and rewiring of our minds. And so how, do, how does that happen? I think it's really interesting. In our text, we have the answer. But there's two things going on. Did you notice it? There's both an active and a passive part that we play. There is an active process and a passive process that we're a part of. There are things that are commanded of us, that's true. In view of God's mercies, don't be conformed to the patterns of this world. In response to the gratitude for what Jesus has done on the cross, these things are commanded of us. We are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices, that's true. That's active. But then there is something that we receive passively, that we are passive partners in. Let me explain, the active part. Don't be conformed to this world. That's an imperative command on us. That is something that we are to do in light of God's mercies. The way that I read this and what comes after, which is why I chose to read the whole chapter, is there's a whole list of things then that Paul gives us that, that shows us how we are not to be conformed to this world. So don't take vengeance. Vengeance belongs to God. Don't do this, do that. Don't do this, do that. And you can read them all in sort of verses 3 to 12 and onwards. These are things that are commanded for us to do. This is how we are to live and not to be conformed to this world. We are to actively choose to do these things and reject the world's way of thinking that says, you are number one, you look after yourself, you get what's coming to you, and if someone crosses you, you cross them. That's the world's work. And and God says, no, don't do that. You live in a different kingdom. You and I need to realize that we march to a different drumbeat. We play to a different tune than the world. When we trust in Jesus, we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and we've been transplanted into the kingdom of the sun. We we live in a kingdom that runs completely countercultural to the rest of the world. In the kingdom of the sun, it's Jesus' kingdom. And here, you win when you lose your life. You, you are first when you're last. You succeed socially when you hang out with the losers. You win politically when you're unpopular with the masses. You gain when you give. You want to be great here? Then be the servant of all. It is a totally different kingdom. How well do we do at living like this? When we evaluate our success in life, what are the metrics that we use? Jesus's or the world's? Big house, fancy car, private school, overseas holiday? Or poor in spirit? Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, mourning over the spiritual state of the world. Totally different values in Jesus's kingdom. 
And the act of command for us is to reject all the world stuff and to subscribe to this set of values, to not be conformed to the world. That is a command for us to obey. But then how can we do that in a world that constantly feeds us stuff and reinforces the world set of values? It's through the passive part. Notice it doesn't say transform your minds. It says be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The renewing of our minds, the mind here, I think, is the the seat of all of our judgment. It's kind of what we would call the heart. Uh, It's the thing that drives us. It's a total rewiring of our internal engines. It's a new operating system being downloaded into our internal computers. It's transformational, and it does not depend on us. And when it happens... We discern God's good and perfect will. But it doesn't depend on us. It is a work of God. Colossians 3 verse 10 puts it this way. You are being renewed in the knowledge according to the image of your creator. That is a process that happens to us as we are being reshaped into Christ in us. And this is a process that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the believer where You should be able to look back two years ago and five years ago and ten years ago and realize that you are a different person and some of the things that you subscribe to today will look different in two and five and ten years. You want to spend less time at the border of the line in the sand, wishing you could have the stuff on the outside when realizing over time actually what you want is God. You want to be with Christ. You want to spend more time at the feet of the Lamb, realizing that the things that used to look so good, so enticing, is actually just garbage that will wreck your life. And as your love grows for God in light of his mercies in Christ Jesus, so your love for sin diminishes. And before you realize it, You've moved so far away from the border that you don't even think of crossing it anymore. It's like when you get married and you have to learn to do the dishes. The start, your wife has to tell you. Active part. And as your love and respect, and she's not here so I can say this, uh, for her grows, you end up doing the dishes just because that's just what you do, because you love her. You don't even think about it. So it is as the Holy Spirit transforms our minds as we're not conformed to the world anymore. We slowly walk away from the line to spend time at the foot of the cross. That's the second side of the diamond. We've seen the basis side, basis of our obedience, the engine of our obedience. I want to look just very briefly at the outcome of our obedience, the final side of our diamond. I read here um, from uh, verse 3, and I'm using the CSB here, but um, I'm sure we'll cope. Paul says, For by the grace given to me, I tell you, every man among you should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Instead, think sensibly, as God has distributed the measure of faith to each one. Now, 
as we have many parts in one body, and all parts do not have the same function, in the same way we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. So according to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, then in service. If teaching, then in teaching. If exhorting, then in exhortation. If in giving, when generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness, and so on. Now, I've chosen only the first eight verses here because we do have limited time. Um, But we could probably extend this to the end of the chapter if we wanted to. What's interesting here, though, is that Paul provides us here with a list of spiritual gifts. Did you notice that? Now, if you've read the book of Ephesians, you'll notice that there's a spiritual gift list there in that book, and they're to be used for the building up of the church. Or if you read the classic spiritual gifts passage in 1 Corinthians 12, you'll, you'll encounter a different list of spiritual gifts to be used for the upbuilding of the church. And here in Romans 12, we have yet another list of spiritual gifts. And guess what? It's there for the upbuilding of the church. Now, in none of these lists, Romans, Ephesians, Corinthians, is it complete. But in each case, these lists are given for the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Now, notice what Paul is doing. He's saying, in the view of God's mercies, offer yourself as living sacrifices. Then he explains what living sacrifices stuff looks like. And the first thing that comes to his mind is actually not how you are to live just out in the world, but how you are to build up the church. And here we discover, I think, a prominent Christian truth. Loving Jesus, being obedient in view of God's mercies, goes hand in hand with loving and serving the church. In fact, I think I might go so far as to say that you cannot claim to love Christ. Well, you can claim to love Christ, but you cannot love Christ and hate the church, which is his body. Now, that does not mean that the body of believers is perfect. I mean, look at you. We have many flaws, do we not? We are a body of broken people who come because we know we are broken people. But you cannot love the head of the church and not love the body. Brothers, have you tried saying to your wife, I love your head, but your body needs work? (laughs) Try it and see how it goes. The same thing with the church. You cannot love the head of the church, Christ, and hate his body. And this has immediate and enduring consequences for us. Loving Jesus, serving him, living as a living sacrifice means that we will serve the church. We will love the body of Christ. We will seek to build her up as part of God's kingdom. It means you are to love your church people, to strive for their best, to choose to love them, even though, just like you, they are actually pretty ugly and unlovable sometimes. And if you find it hard to love the church, then you need to look again at the head of the church, which is Christ, to see the mercies of God poured out on you, and then to love the church. The Holy Spirit gives each believer spiritual gifts, all of us, you, me, everyone, 
And the reason these gifts are given is for the upbuilding of the church. The Spirit gives us these gifts to worship God by investing in the body. And that's the outcome of our obedience, at least in part. So the basis of our obedience is the mercies of God, particularly as we consider Christ's work on the cross for us, one side of the diamond. The engine room or power of our obedience is the transformation we have within us as the Holy Spirit changes our minds, renews our minds, and we actively partake in obeying him. And the outcome of our obedience is the upbuilding of the church and the growth of God's kingdom. These three sides of the diamond. And when you hold the diamond, obedience diamond up like this, I think that's pretty beautiful. Maybe you agree. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that once again this morning we can come and hear your word read and try to submit ourselves to it in obedience to what you have done for us on the cross. Lord, as we consider the mercies of God poured out on us in Christ Jesus through his work on the cross as he becomes our Lord and we accept that in faith, we pray that this morning we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Lord, we pray that you will change and rewire us so that we will not love what is on the other side of that line, but that we will love you. That we will want to spend time at the foot of the cross with our Saviour. That over time you will change our hearts to want your things. Lord, please write your, your law on our hearts as you have promised to do. So that we may obey not begrudgingly but lovingly in light of the mercies of God. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.